Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Well, thank you very much for joining me yet again. Uh, I'm Douglas Wilson. This is the Plodcast, and this is episode 262. It's hard for me to imagine that we've uh, done this 262 times, but there you go. So one of the things I want to talk about as we are dealing with this uh, churning time of ours, this maelstrom of a generation, is I want to talk about the liberal social order classical liberalism. Um, And I want to talk about it because we have gotten to an inflamed state in our debates where people who are hardline conservative are oftentimes cast as the enemies of liberal social order. Well, I don't think that that's right. And by by liberal social order, I mean um, mutual respect for for people on the other side of the political aisle, free markets, free exchange of ideas, that kind of thing. The kind of society that everybody claimed we lived in when I was a young man. That has given way to all the woke madness and cancel culture and just sort of a frenzied pitch of intolerance in pretty much every direction you care to look. And those, the Christians who have reacted to the woke nonsense by saying we need to well, let me j- jump over to uh, what might seem like a change of subject, but it's not really. C.S. Lewis quotes Aristotle, who raised the question about different, th- there's the behavior that democracies like and the behavior that will preserve democracy. Those are not the same thing. There are behaviors that aristocrats like, and there are behaviors that will preserve aristocracy. There are behaviors that liberal social orders like, and there are behaviors that will preserve liberal social orders. Now, what has happened in the woke madness and the attempt to exclude or chase out of the public square any form of believing Christianity is the, uh, this is the revolt of the branches against the root. What we point to as the the liberal social order is a social order that developed in the West and developed in the West for a reason. So, I would want to say that this kind of uh, uh, liberal social order is a fruit that grows on one kind of tree, Uh, and that tree is conservative, believing, evangelical Christianity. If you say, this, uh, you Christians are intolerant and we will banish you because we can't have your intolerance around here. What people are failing to recognize is that it was intolerant Christianity, believing Christianity, that produced liberty of conscience. That th- this whole system that people are in the process of burning down right now is a state of affairs that we Christians came up with. Another way of putting it is that religious liberty is a religious value. Religious liberty is a religious value, and it is a religious value 
that is not shared equally by all religions. So, a consistent fundamentalist Islam does not value religious liberty. It's not, it's not something that would grow out of the Islamic state. It is a consistent fruit of Christian theology. It doesn't grow out of secularism. It doesn't grow out of Hinduism. It doesn't grow out of Islam. It doesn't grow out of any worldview except Christian worldview uh, thinking. So, what are we going to do? What we have to do is recognize that in order to have, in order to preserve the liberal social order, we have to interfere with the liberal social order's current cancellation attempts on the Christians. So this is it's not that we want to fight uh, the woke so that Christianity can cram our uh, tenets down their throat. No, I believe that what would happen is if Christians <laughs> if Christians seized control of the public square, one of the first things that we would notice is how much more tolerant it got. And I, let me go over that again. This is really important. The people who are fighting the Christians have believed their own propaganda. They've spooked themselves. And what they're doing is they're saying, if Christians take over, then it's the handmaid's tale for us. They have been spooked by their own propaganda. And so what we need to do is recognize that in fighting for our liberties as Christians, we are simultaneously fighting for the liberties of people who disagree with us. Take a secular atheist down the street, uh, living down the street from me. I trust myself with his liberty far more than I trust him with mine. I trust myself with his liberty far more than I trust him with mine. Always will be God. We continue on with the podcast. This is episode 262, and we're continuing on in the study from archaeology, the study of sin as biblically defined. When we sin and are ashamed of it, this is a good thing, Romans 6.21. When someone is converted, they are turning away from sin that they're currently ashamed of. Uh, shame and guilt is like a moral nerve ending. If we had no nerve endings, we would be cutting ourselves constantly. We'd be burning our hands on the stove. Pain is a gift, a, a true gift, because if we didn't have the gift of pain, we would damage ourselves in very serious ways. So shame is not like that. Shame, uh, the shame that follows after sin is a healthy sign, a healthy sign of a healthy conscience. But in other situations, it's a sin to be ashamed. And it, everything boils down to what you're ashamed of. And the word we're considering today is ipaskunomai. Ipaiskunomai. It's a long one. E-P-A-I-S-C-H-U-N-O-M-A-I. Ipaskunomai. To be ashamed. We must never be ashamed of Christ, and we must never be ashamed of his words. We see this in Mark 8.38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Like I said, that's Mark 8.38, and then you can look at the parallel passage in Luke 9.26. They're not verbatim, there's some differences between them, but the main thought is there. Anyone who's ashamed of Jesus 
and ashamed of his words is someone that Christ is going to be ashamed of when he comes. So clearly, Christ is not sinning when he's ashamed because his shame is shame over something that's actually shameful. But when we are ashamed of Christ, he's not shameful, and we're ashamed of his words. Those words aren't shameful. Well, therefore, that's a bad deal. It's a sin. Paul sets us a good example. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So that runs closely parallel to the Lord's admonition to not be ashamed of him, not be ashamed of his words. Jesus says, don't be ashamed of his gospel. Paul also makes it a point to encourage Timothy not to be ashamed of Paul, even though he was receiving vile treatment. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. That's 2 Timothy 1.8. He says something similar a few verses down. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Anesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chain. That's 2 Timothy 1.16. So what happens is uh, certain Christians are, uh, shall we say, they, they are respectable. Um, they comb their hair in the morning. They take, they take showers. They wear neckties to work. And they, you know, they, they are upright, upstanding, respectable types. Now, oftentimes, people don't get to that place unless they care about being in that place. And there's a certain way of caring about being respectable that is the wrong kind of caring. And if someone, let's say you've got someone in that position, and uh, the Apostle Paul uh, is traveling through town, and he's, he's going to uh, give a series of messages at your church, but before he can speak at your church, or before he can finish the, the week of messages in the evening, uh, he was doing some street preaching, apparently, during the day, and he got arrested, and he's in the county jail. Now, if you're the pastor of this respectable church, and your visiting preacher just got thrown in Hoosgau, and you are thinking about going to visit him, his, he, he's done nothing disreputable. All he's done is preach the gospel of forgiveness. He's done nothing disreputable. But he is being treated as though he had done something disreputable. And there's a certain kind of person that doesn't want to be standing next to that, doesn't want to be seen dealing with that. And Onesiphorus, Paul says, was not in that category. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. He was not ashamed to go up to the county, county jail check in to go visit the prisoner. Oftentimes, if you, if you go, by a, um, uh, go by a jail on Visitor's Day, you will see family members and people hanging out outside wanting to uh, go in and visit their relative, husband, father, brother, whoever it is. And frequently, not always, frequently it's the case that the families of someone who's in jail, they look like the families of someone who might have knocked over a gas station or done something, you know, arrested for a DUI. And it's not respectable. You don't want to be the one 
standing outside the uh, visitor's entry to the jail while people are driving by, checking out who's there. And let's say you've got a minister of this uh, church that was going to have Paul preach, deciding whether to go visit him. And he says, I can't stand, I can't afford to wait out there for 45 minutes watching everybody drive by, watching me, the pastor of First Memorial. Are you, are you serious? Here again, we have another good example from Paul. This is also 2 Timothy 1.12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So what you have here, when Paul says, I am not ashamed, He's saying, I'm not ashamed, despite many invitations from the enemy to be ashamed. I'm, they're going to revile me and then treat me as though I had done something vile. And Paul, Paul just steadfastly refused to be embarrassed over the treatment he was getting because he knew the game that was being played. He knew what was going on. So, continuing on with the podcast, episode 262, we come to our uh, book review. Uh, The book I'd like to review this time around is Reformed Preaching by Joel Beakey. The big, my my edition was a gift from a friend, big hardback edition. And uh, Reformed Preaching, one of the things that Joel Beakey excels at doing is he excels at bringing the uh, thought and practice and insight of the Puritans and historic Reformed to bear in modern situations. So, uh, this is not a homiletics text. It's not a, it's not a book on, you know, how to gesture or how to project or how to uh, prepare uh, the sermon exegetically and so on. But it, it's full of practical advice on different aspects of preaching. And, it, and the emphasis of the book is on the experiential side of it. So, the Puritans wanted to preach a Christ to be experienced. They want, uh, or I think their phrase for it was a felt Christ. They didn't want to preach Christ as an abstraction or Christ as a theological dictum in the sky. They wanted to preach a felt Christ. And what Beakey does here in this book is he, he marshals all sorts of theological writers over the centuries, all sorts of Puritan quotes, all sorts of um, observations from men who were true students of the Word and who were true students of human nature. Frankly, the Puritans were good at what they did. And uh, Joel Beakey is good at what he does also, which is to comb through all that material and assemble it in an accessible way for us to take advantage of. That's what, that's what we're after. That's what we like. That's what we need. So, if you are a preacher, uh, if you are someone who brings the Word of God to the people of God on any kind of regular basis, uh, you, should, you should be obtaining and reading books on preaching, all kinds of books on preaching. You should be reading homiletics, uh, books on sermon prep, books on, you should be reading all of those. But among those books that you're getting and reading, 
Uh, this book, Reformed Preaching by Joel Beakey, should be one of them. Mm-hmm.